Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. As you can see, I am not Gary Bolton. And this is not Larry Thompson from Vantage Point. Uh, Gary had to deal with plane cancellations, and I believe right now he's somewhere up in the air over mid-America. And since Gary wanted to interview Larry, uh, we decided to postpone that for another day. Instead, you get me, Tom Cohen, uh, Corporate and Regulatory Counsel for the Fiber Broadband Association, and I'm an attorney with Kelly Dry and Warren. And most especially, you get my good friend, Mike Romano, who has been incredibly kind to join us from a hotel room in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where he was just speaking. And Mike, uh, many of you know Mike, he's executive vice president at NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association. And Mike and I can talk about any number of items in the legal regulatory world. Today, we're going to focus largely on the BEAD program out of NTIA and what's new with it and other government funding programs and sort of the overall consequences of them. And we welcome your questions. Uh, Please type them in. We hope to get to it. Uh, And so, Mike, With that as a start, last week, uh, the NTIA released an updated version of the FAQs. What were the things that stood out in that? Thanks, Tom. I'm glad to be able to join you. Yeah, so NTIA had put out an initial round of FAQs that, um, in many respects, essentially stated in Q&A format what was stated in the NOFO. And I think this next round, or this most recent round of FAQs, really went um, a level deeper and addressed a number of the questions that obviously people had posed since the NOFO. And it answered some some questions, I think, some of the most interesting ones that we're pressing right now. And certainly there are some, I think, still to come. And I think the indication of NTIA that there's going to be another round of FAQs, hopefully coming soon, um, that will address some of the, the further questions outstanding. But in this round, I think some of the questions they answered most interestingly were just about eligible expenses. So for example, um, you know, everybody thinks of grants typically as a CapEx uh, supporting initiative, but now this time around, uh, you know, they did indicate that there could be some eligible uses for operating expenses as well. Um, they talked about what kinds of areas are unserved and how reliable broadband fits into this and, and the notion of setting extremely high cost locations and what kinds of broadband can be delivered to those. Provided some, I think, helpful clarification around the requirements of, of workforce and, and whether you needed unionized workforce or I think what they clarify in the FAQs is that they're rather looking more specifically for high quality, high paying jobs, but not necessarily mandating a, a unionized workforce, for example. Uh, provided some clarification around title, how you, who holds the assets, who holds an interest in the assets, and what kind of federal interest is held in the assets that are funded even after the you know, so grant monies come out and over the life of the network in question. Provided some, thought, some helpful guidance about the relationship with subcontractors, and you know, this is often this discussion around sort of what you need to do and how many bids you need to place, for example, for subcontractors. And obviously, with workforce constraints where they are right now, 
having a prior relationship with some contractors can be really useful to get things running as fast as fast as one can. Um, and then they, they spent a lot of time, I think, on some of the challenge processes, discussing the interplay of what the FCC is doing in terms of challenges, what the states will be doing in terms of challenges, the fabric that's out there for mapping. So I think all of those things were um, some of the highlights in the most recent FAQs. And the last thing I just noticed, I think NTI very helpfully updated the FAQs in a way that allows you to isolate which questions were updated from the first round. Um, so you can go right in and see that yourself uh, on NTI's website. Yeah, you know, Mike, I saw, you know, stepping back, two sort of interesting points. One is still we're all waiting to get a better idea of timing. And, and it was pretty clear uh, NTIA is saying uh, that it's the FCC's challenge process is very important. And they're not going to rush things until they feel that challenge process sort of has worked its course. They're not going to say, oh, TIA, they've made it clear they want everyone out there to really engage seriously in the, in the challenge process at the FCC. They want those maps accurate. They don't want to be criticized later on for short-circuiting some, you know, somebody's allocation as part of it. So that, that was one item. Another item, and it goes to what you talked about sort of with labor and other things, is there's a flexibility here. In other words, when pencils are down and those initial applications come in, um, we're going to see a back and forth, I think, between or among states and NTIA as they sort of craft the initial and final proposals. And I think you can see sort of some give and take that's going to occur there, which again puts a premium on everybody out there beginning now to work with the states as we go along. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I think. You know, NTIA had been cleared, uh, had started to make comments about the FCC's map, but you're right, Tom. I think that, that in the FAQs, they really do try to put in writing, essentially, how they're stitching these pieces together. Yeah, well, and so, you know, moving, you know, to talk a bit about mapping, uh, you know, we've got the challenge process ongoing now on the fabric and how good that's going to be. Uh, the FCC put out a notice last week on bulk challenges and what they want to see there. Uh, and then we have, you know, likely the maps version 1.0 come out later November, let's say. Uh, it appears that, though, this is all still going to take time. And the what I call pencils down is maybe not be till mid-year next year at the earliest. What are your thoughts about all of that? I think that's right. And, you know, I think folks, some folks have expressed a little bit of frustration of why is this going to take so long with the challenge processes being as involved there. Look, this is a process that Congress contemplated itself. So, and I think the good thing is we're now going to see this process play itself out, you know, so it shouldn't be a surprise. I think people, this is going to be uh, the amount of time it's going to take. Uh, there, I think the FAQs, again, going back to those, really highlighted the several different layers of challenge processes built into this. So you mentioned the fabric challenge process. Again, a, a process contemplated really by the law that created these maps and mandated the use of them. Um, so you're going to have people going in now, providers, communities, other stakeholders, saying basically these locations do or don't exist or are missing from the FCC's map based upon the initial fabric that was put in. You're also going to see a data challenge process where provider, where 
uh, different stakeholders come in and basically say, well, I saw the provider reported this against the fabric, but I think they can only do that, or this area is not covered by right. them. So you're going to have that challenge process. And then I, there, behind that is the uh, eligible entities. The states are going to be doing their own challenge processes once they start to get applications for funding. So um, I think in all three areas, those challenge processes are really important. They are time consuming, but they're a feature, not a bug of this process. I, I think they're going to lead to better decision making, better uh, identification, better targeting of, of the areas that need support or funding. So um, it, it may be frustrating that it's taking as long as it is. And I think you're right that it's probably going to be the middle of next year before we see really any ability to move quickly with bead or move forward with bead. But that is the, the process I think we need to follow, both because it's a law and because it's going to end up with um, funding getting to the right places, uh, hopefully, as well. Yeah, you know, a question came in about, so when can we get the addresses, the locations uh, of the unserved, underserved areas? And it seems to me, um, you know, you're going to see them uh, in version 1.0, but I don't know that you can trust them. And there's going to just be a whole lot of back and forth. People should understand uh, this is not, you know, one and done. At some point, we're going to say that's it, and it ends all good. You got to keep in mind uh, we're going to deal in version 1.0 with data that came in as of June 30th that gets submit that got submitted as of September 1. There's new data. December 31 date is going to come in March 1st. It's going to be part of this process. And so there's still, you know, people have to understand it's it's like we're going to get halfway there all the time. Uh, it's We're going to keep converging on this and we're going to get better at it as we go along. But, you know, you talked about uh, after the FCC's maps are sort of sanctioned by NTIA, we move to the state process, and that's another sort of process that's going to help with this convergence. And I will tell you, in my mind, that state process is critical as to, you know, they're going to have projects in front of them, so it's going to be a little more certain what the locations are, and that pro those processes need to operate with integrity. They need to operate transparently, objectively, if people are going to have faith in the money going out the door. They do. And, and again, I think we're going to have a narrowed set of, as you said, it's going to be a narrowed set of issues because we're going to be looking at specific areas under specific applications. And by that point, the FCC's maps, and the, the word we've heard used by the FCC repeatedly is iterative. Um, the, you know, your point about sort of Zeno's paradox, we're always getting halfway there. I, I think that's what we're going to see with these maps, and that's that's a good thing. It's a feature again, not a bug. It's a design that Congress wanted to see. But you're right; the states are going to be the final sanity check on should we really be giving money in these areas, and that will be a final opportunity to go in and show whether an area is you know, already subject to a state grant that's been under prior programs or whatever it may be. So I think that's going to be an important and and can't be overlooked stage of the process. Yeah, and you know we're getting questions coming in on this issue. I'm not surprised from all over, you know, that it's it's a critical issue, and people are wondering about um, advantages incumbents might have versus consumers or governments and alike. And to me, it isn't just a simple answer. Uh, if you have fiber to a location, 
the odds are you're getting the speeds you want. And probably with HFC plants to some extent, but as soon as you go to fixed wireless DSL to me, all bets are off. And that's where the FCC is really going to have to work hard and states as well. You're right. And, you know, the mobility fund is really the uh, canary in the coal mine in some ways. And you look at what happened with the mobility fund and that ultimately fell apart in no small part because the maps were wrong, because providers weren't reporting pursuant to the same standards or doing different ways of sort of calculating things. And that just highlights, I mean, you know, the variability potential in mapping wireless deployments. Um, the FCC has tried to apply some standards to this. They're trying to require some propagation modeling from some providers on this. But at the end of the day, it is going to be that challenge process, both at the federal level and then again at the state level after that, that's going to be critical to making sure we're not seeing locations missed and we're not seeing overstatement of coverage in a way that denies uh, denies funding. So you're right, Tom. It's, there's no one-size-fits-all answer or easy button here to hit. Um, this is going to require hard work. But again, I keep seeing, thinking of it as you're saying, getting halfway there, we're always narrowing the issues to hopefully get to a place where the decision-making is far better than it has been in the past, certainly based upon 477. We're just going through a, pain, a little bit of a painful transition, or not a little bit, a painful transition process in getting there. Right. It, and you know, it's going to be a lengthy one uh, to get it where everybody is satisfied. But, you know, I think one of the things, you know, we, we get this, get a question now, get it elsewhere. Uh, is the FCC map at the end of the day going to be the definitive map? And I, I think you'd like to have one map at the end of the day. You know, states deal with their challenge process. You'd like to have that inputted into the FCC map. You'd also like, I have to say, from my perspective, when the challenges begin at the states, they should first be able to point to the FCC map and say, I've chosen locations there that are deemed unserved or underserved, or if I haven't, here's the reason why. You know, the states will be participating in the FCC's challenge process to develop the FCC map. So in reality, again, I would hope that by the time you get to the state challenge process, what you're picking up is the point that you made earlier, Tom, about What's the operation of time? What has happened since the states did their challenge to the FCC right. to have that incorporated? And did anybody since then undertake new deployments or have there been new awards under other programs and other agencies or at the state level themselves that can be updated in that? So again, I know that, you know, and, and look, in a perfect world, the maps would have done in a way where you did the fabric first, settled that foundation, and then tried to build the house atop it. The fact that we had all these funding mechanisms coming at the same time and they were required to use the maps required in some ways the plane to be built as it was being flown. And, you know, I, I don't think that that, ideally it's not the sequencing you would have had, but as long as folks are faithful about using discipline, about using the right information at the right time, um, we're going to get to a better place. I'm relatively optimistic. The pain though of flying that plane along the way or building as you fly it, it, it is difficult for, especially from smaller providers who really don't have the resources to, to try to do all of this all at once and be applying for grants at the same time under reconnect or other programs you know it, it's it's a strain on resources but i, I do think we're going to get to a place where the fcc's map will be the author most authoritative resource we've got it will not be perfect but it would be better than anything we've had before and the states can continue to iterate on that and refine it in a way that will help them make better decisions on what funding well let me add just one more layer of complexity to this, which is 
committed locations where governments have given out money, services not available yet. And so how do we include them? And to me, there's a, you know, we just saw this recently with FCC turning down Starlink and LPD broadband, and they've done others. So now those aren't committed locations. Uh, you and I have spoken about upcoming work uh, by the FCC on the ACAM program, broadband loop support, doing that. And then there's another layer where states are going out there now spending CARES money, ARPA money to you know, begin uh, awards or make awards already for deployments. And you know, if they do that, are, do they get dinged under bead? Because all of a sudden, those are committed locations, their allocation of funding goes down. It's what I call uh, no good deed goes unpunished. And sort of how does all that begin to work? So Congress um, had passed a law called the Broadband Interagency Coordination Act, or BICA. And you'll hear folks refer to that a lot. And there's an interagency agreement between the FCC, USDA, and NTIA, uh, and Treasury maybe on that as well, um, that basically says we're supposed to be sharing information with each other about awards we make. You know, I think, and the FCC sought comments on how to sort of implement that in its relationship to what the FCC um, ultimately publishes the map. And I think one of the things that you saw a number of stakeholders weigh in on that to say was the FCC's map needs to not only take in sort of information from providers who report their coverage, but also needs to take information from RUS about where have I made a reconnect award. It needs to take information from the states about where they collect information from states about where they've gotten CARES and, and ARPA money grants out the door. And that's there aren't necessarily processes set up for that, so there are going to be gaps and holes in that. I, I guess my thought had been in some degree this is a perfect place for the states to come in and make that sort of showing when it's that, ch that challenge process to say, hey, we've got a commitment here that isn't reflected in providers actually reporting coverage yet. But you're right, Tom, I mean, the incentives are a little odd because the more the states do that, the less likely they are then to get funding because they've taken those things off the table. Um, so there is a little bit of an honor system aspect to this. But I think ultimately the goal is, and a lot of stakeholders versus the FCC to say basically, you should have a map that shows both where providers are and where they will be to the extent they've got a certain type of commitment that's actually vested and enforceable. Right, and you're right, pointing out the odd incentives and, and you know, hopefully if every state were doing the same thing, then it would sort of wash out, all the allocations would, would be there. Uh, so, uh, I mean, we'll see. I'm not sure there's an easy answer of how to deal with it. I mean, you could say, uh, you know, for those purposes of state commitments, pens were down already on September 1. And so whatever states do forward, they're not going to lose out and they would have an incentive. On the other hand, you know, sort of then some states may get overfunded, underfunded. It's, it's a real challenge. It is, it is, right? And, you know, it, it shouldn't lead to potentially duplicative networks because all it is is the allocation. The states can ultimately decide where to send the money within their state. So they would presumably not send it to a place they've already got a state area, but a state-funded um, program network already in place. But it does just create this potential for confusion. And, and you know, with the, the whole goal of this ultimately is to make sure that we're getting, the, you know, it's a, I know it's a large amount of money, but a limited amount of funding to where it's needed most 
different programs can help in doing that alongside each other, but it's that only works to the extent that they are sharing this information. And what you don't want to have happen in the end is an area where it's uneconomic for any one network to even operate on its own, and the business case isn't there. Um, suddenly having two networks right. that are equally unsustainable and now essentially you know, cannibalizing each other in that market. Yeah, Mike, great point sort of about national interest in completely closing the digital divide versus individual state interests in terms of what their allocation may be and what they're able to do. Um, so uh, with that, let me move over to, to another issue, which is a couple of months ago, Chairwoman Rosenworcel said, time to move up the benchmark for advanced communication service from 25 and three to 100 by 20 and with an aspirational goal of one gig by 500 meg. Uh, it's been two months since she talked about that and releasing the notice of inquiry. What's your thought about where we stand and uh, are we gonna be able to with a 2-2 FCC move forward on that right now? Yeah, I think the last part of your question, Tom, may be the most pertinent in terms of where things stand. Um, what we've traditionally seen is um, differing perspectives from across the aisle about what sort of qualifies as um, sort of sufficient advancement of, of broadband uh, and the potential for declaring you know, failure or entirely new unserved areas as a result of um, moving that speed standard up and suddenly looking like what had been success is now a shortcoming. Uh, I think you know, to some degree, Congress has already set this bar as a result of the laws that it's passed such that I think you know, the, the thought of moving up to 100 over 20 perhaps is not as problematic or controversial as it might've been in the absence of that. I, you know, and I don't have any specific inside knowledge of what's happening over there, but one supposition I'd have is that that longer term objective is potentially a little bit of a hang up because there are some who are gonna say that that then becomes the yardstick by which we measure new funding programs and the like, and that then potentially, um, you know, it's not technologically neutral or it, it limits the ability of certain providers to participate or opens up other areas. We believe, I think that longer term objective is an important one. I think one of the biggest shortcomings and failures of prior funding programs has been an incrementalist approach that basically says, well, we'll aim for good enough right now. We'll just redo this again in three years and have people scratching their heads. Why are we redoing this again in three years? So I think that, the, I think that longer term objective is a, a good one to have. I suspect though that's causing some consternation within the halls of the commission about what is that level set at? Do we really want to have that? What are the implications of having such a, a longer term objective? Yeah, I think it's important to distinguish between using that to determine sort of the threshold for a new funding program, that is what's unserved or underserved versus what gets deployed in that funding program. And, you know, it's interesting with the congressional action on broadband and beat program, what NTIA has put out on the NOFO, you know, there are some outliers, but there's quite a bit of consensus, it seems to me, uh, or we're getting closer to one, let's put it that way, of 100 by 20 as now the current definition of e even unserved. You know, we're, we're pretty close to that. And any anything below that, we're going to need to fund and above that, there's probably a natural transition in the market for systems that have 100 by 20 to begin to move up. Announcements all the time 
in various sectors, cable industry and alike, going to you know new versions of Doxus and alike. And so if they're going to move up naturally, why fund them? On the other hand, for the programs, you know, NTIA, uh, despite the uh, complaining out there, I think set the idea of for fixed broadband fiber first. If you can put in fiber up to, and they have the extremely high cost per location threshold, some number, that's where we want to be. And, you know, as I say, despite the complaining around the edges, I think, you know, most people are there. I think that's right. You know, I, I, you, know you look at some of the prior programs again, and, and there was this sort of, um, I guess, head scratching or confusion about why did we aim so low and have to redo this? Isn't this inefficient to do this every several years? I, I think NTIA saw the priority broadband project language and the, the law that created the B program and others and said, well, that really does mean fiber. And, and I, I don't, there, there is some pressure there to, to see that change. There are folks claiming that's not, you know, obviously not technologically neutral. Um, but at the end of the day, I think NTIA is looking at objectively at the capabilities of the varying technologies and saying, what are we going to do to make sure that this is a scalable project that's going to still have relevance to the consumer and utility in the area that's being served in a decade or two decades, rather than, again, having people look back and say, why did they make such a sort of, you know, um, sort of milk toast choice in, in how to deploy these networks in a way that leaves people wanting again in five or ten years and people wondering whether that 42 billion dollars was well spent well we're we're as always you and i talking we could keep going for a while one more question you've been in the door lately at the fcc about following up on last month's future of universal service uh fund report uh What's on your mind and going back in? Well, you know, the SEC was required to do that report. Um, I, you know, I think what that report signals is a bit of a shift in the FCC's approach to this and mentality on it. I think in the last 10 years, to some degree, the FCC had been in the, you know, had felt competitive with other agencies to be in the grant making business, right? I mean, even though universal service is an ongoing support mechanism, it doesn't provide upfront capital. You still have to go borrow money or have your own money on hand to go build to get universal service support. The FCC had sort of seen itself coming out of the National Broadband Plan as being a, a, you know, wanting to be a grant-making agency. I think the future, the report that Congress they did signaled a return to sort of what the mission of universal service had always been, which is reasonably comparable services at reasonably comparable rates. So the question becomes, in the wake of all these grant programs, how does universal service continue to assure that? Are there places where a grant program or certainly a grant program may not be operating that continue to need universal service support. And what does that look like? What are the levels of support needed? It's going to be different than it was before. No one's saying there's not gonna be a change, but there is still a statutory mission independent of BEAD and all these other things to ensure reasonably comparable services at reasonably comparable rates. And the FCC has to carry out that mission. So our thoughts and going to talk to the FCC about this were just, you know, you may think that you're sort of all done because the network's built, but in certain places, you're not going to be. The cost of operating it, the cost of maintaining it, the pressures to maintain affordable rates for users on it will be still significant and may require universal service support to a certain level. Let's start that conversation. It's gonna take time, but we don't need to wait for B to start that conversation. We know the effects of grants. We already have reconnect out there, we already have state programs out there. Let's start taking account of this now rather than waiting five to seven years to figure out what the future universal service is. Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, before we close, I should just add for everybody, on uh, Monday, NTIA released a proposed waiver 
uh, from the uh, Build America, Buy America requirement for the Middle Mile program. Comments are due on October 3rd on that waiver. It's quite specific on the equipment that they are providing the waiver for. So all of you have been asking about what's known as uh, where is Baba headed? Uh, here's an opportunity to look at this and weigh in. And so with that, uh, Mike, thanks again from your hotel room in Fort Wayne for joining us uh, next week on uh, Fiber for Breakfast, Wednesday, September 28th. Uh, we will have uh, the state of the states, broadband mapping initiatives at the state level. Uh, and by the way, uh, I know that many of you who have filed at the FCC, uh, states have requested that same filing. So that's interesting what will go in there. This will be with uh, Jay Randolph Looning of Signals Analytics, LLC, Eric McRae of the University of Georgia, uh, where Georgia has done great mapping, and uh, Ray Zeiss of the North, of North Carolina State University. So please uh, register for all of that uh, and be with us next week for Fiber for Breakfast. And instead of me, you'll have Gary Bolton back. I hope he won't be in the air again. Thanks so much. Have a good day and thanks, Mike.